0: invite you to turn to Esther tonight, Esther uh, chapter 1. We want to look at verses uh, 1 through 12, feasting with King Ahasuerus. And boy, I tell you, when you uh, feasted with him, it was a big deal. It was a big party. I mean, it was a big deal. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the background before we get into uh, the text itself here tonight. We don't know who wrote the book of Esther. Uh, suggested possibilities include uh, Mordecai, Ezra, Nehemiah, but we really don't know who. Mordecai would probably be a good guess. Uh, The book is named after its principal character, Esther. Uh, Esther's Hebrew name was Hadassah, uh, which means myrtle. Esther was her Persian name, meaning star. Now, we're not sure if she was named after Myrtle the bird or Myrtle the tree. What do you think? Whoops. Went to the tree first. Yeah, there's the bird. Pretty bird, huh? Yeah. Or the tree. What do you think? Was she named after the bird or the tree? For the bird that lives in the tree. Ah, the bird. (laughs) Double meaning. (laughs) Anyway, we don't know. We don't know uh, why she was named Myrtle in Hebrew. But uh, she was. Uh, Esther is one of two books in the Bible that are named after a woman. The other is Ruth. Ruth. That's right. And uh, as far as the theme, God's providential care for his people. I love that theme. I love that theme. And of course, we are in chapter one, uh, Queen Vashti deposed. And we are considering tonight uh, the question, why Vashti did not want to come to the all men's party? Uh, Why? Why was it? Well, I don't know that we're going to answer that question, but we are going to maybe uh, talk about it a little bit. Interesting situation here. A little bit more background, a few points here. Chronologically, this book, Esther, fits between chapter 6 and chapter 7 in the book of Ezra. Uh, The dates of the events take place somewhere after the Jews had returned from the Babylonian captivity, after they had built the second temple. So the dates of the events are approximately 483 to 473 B.C. as far as what's happening here in the book. And uh, perhaps it was written around 450 B.C. A lot of perhapses here, right? Yeah. Number two, Esther was an orphan uh, who was raised by, we believe, her cousin Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai was an official. He had a position. He was uh, somebody in the palace. He had an official uh, position there in the palace of the Persian king. Uh, This king's name in Hebrew is Ahasuerus. uh, But in the Greek, it's rendered Xerxes. Now, this king reigned over, it says, 127 provinces. And we'll talk more about this in just a little bit. uh, Which included an estimated 2 to 3 million Jews. So he had a lot of Jews under his authority here at this point. Number three, both Isaiah and Jeremiah had made it very clear that following the Babylonian captivity... The intention of God was that his people do what, do you suppose? They were in captivity for 70 years. What's God want them to do after the captivity? Go back home. Yeah, that's where they belong. Uh, Talk about the the Jews uh, and the land be like uh, body and soul. They just belong together. And so they were supposed to go back home. Well, these folks here that we're dealing with in the book of Esther, where were they? They're in Persia they're not back home. They hadn't gone back home. Why not? Well, it seems like they're kind of a little bit out of the will of God in terms of what God had clearly said through the prophets, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Let me ask you, you think God is faithful to people that kind of get out of his will? I certainly hope so, because that happens to all of us to some level at some point or another, right? Yeah, God remains faithful, and that's what the book of Esther is all about. Now, it's interesting, one thing about the book of Esther is God is not mentioned. God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, not even one single time, which is unique to this book in the Bible. There's no New Testament quote from this book. The context is secular and relates to a people who are largely out of the will of God. And yet, in that context, God shows himself to be faithful to his people and his promises as he providentially cares for his own. Number five, although God's name is not mentioned, his providential hand is seen throughout the book. Boy, we're going to see this in in a big way. The circumstances surrounding Esther becoming queen, it wasn't just lucky, uh, it was providence. The circumstances surrounding Haman, Mordecai, Ahasuerus, the king, the fate of the Jewish people, all point to a God who is providentially working, out all things according to his sovereign providential purposes. And then let's talk just for a moment about the Feast of Purim. It was instituted after the turn of events that resulted uh, in the fall of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, followed by the deliverance and vengeance of the Jews. Pur means lots. Uh, Purim is the plural of pur. Haman had cast lots, you see, to determine the day when the mass slaughter of the Jews would be carried out. Lots would be related to the idea of luck or chance. But in fact, what comes through in this book is God's providence. Now, Purim is observed on the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar, uh, which is the last month on the Hebrew calendar corresponding to our February-March. It's an interesting note about this this holiday. Uh, Carl... Armadine says, quote, The book of Esther gives us a segment of the history of the Jews which is not supplied elsewhere in the Bible. For instance, it is here that we learn about the origin of the Feast of Purim, which, as we all know, is celebrated by the Jewish people to this very day. Where does it go back to? Well, it goes back to Esther. That's where it comes from. And if we didn't have the book of Esther, we wouldn't have a biblical basis. It wouldn't be a, a biblical holiday in that sense. And finally, one more thing. Uh, The words providence and sovereignty are closely related in matters of theology. Sovereignty speaks of the fact that God is is the sovereign reign or the sovereign ruler over all things. All is under his authority and control. It is a very broad word that covers all things. Uh, God promotes some things, permits some things, and prevents some things, but all things are under his sovereign authority, and control. Now, the word providence comes from a Latin word meaning to provide. Pro means before, and video means to see. To see, right? Video, to see. So putting it all together, it means to see beforehand in order to provide. Providence is specifically related to the provision of God and the exact timing of, of his provision within the normal course of events by which he cares for his people. So providence has a lot to do with just the right thing that needed to happen at just the right time. In a way, it was not a miracle. A miracle would be a supernatural intervention. But this is just in the what what you would call the normal course of events, but but it happens at just the right time, a sequence of events at just the, the right time. So there's a difference here between a miracle, which is supernatural intervention, which bypasses the normal laws of nature, and providence, in which God works through normal, ordinary circumstances. Now, there are no miracles recorded in Esther. No miracles in Esther. But perhaps no other book in the Bible so strongly emphasizes the providence of God. Well, let me ask you, what's a greater work of God? Miracles or providence? What do you suppose is a greater work of God? A miracle or a providential working of God? Yeah, okay, six of this, half does the other. I think it's all of the same stuff. It all has the hand of God orchestrating it entirely. Now miracles, you know, it really gets your attention in a big way. Where sometimes, and people say stupid things like, "Boy, I was lucky." You were really lucky. You almost got ran over by that truck. You were really lucky. I would say, no. We were talking about this with some family members and a certain situation in the family that we've been dealing with, and and it happened to go very well. And I was we talking to people, I was saying, boy, and uh, so happened that uh, my wife was involved, and, and the family member says, yeah, Janie's got the right touch. And I stopped, and I said, let's give God some credit here. We were praying about this. And they said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but sometimes we kind of became uh, kind of glory robbers just a little bit, like we did it. No, we didn't do it. God is sovereignly controlling this, providentially controlling. The key verse in the book of Esther is, Esther 4.14, For if you remain complete, and this is Mordecai talking to Esther, he says, If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. (laughs) Whoa. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What a, great, what a great verse, for such a time as this. This has everything to do with God's providential timing, his working just so for such a time as this. Well, let's get into it. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, this was uh, the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, Uh, He reigned over the Persian Empire for 21 years, from 485 to 465 BC. And one of the provinces he ruled over was Judah, from which uh, the Jews hailed from. So he was reigning over that that province. And uh, India here in Esther 1, uh, verse 1, corresponds to modern-day Pakistan, Ethiopia to uh, uh, southern Egypt, Sudan, parts of Ethiopia... Suffice it to say, it was a really large area, right? Boy, look at the size of this kingdom. As far as related to what we're talking about, Egypt and Turkey and Syria, Iran. You know, we've got, of course, uh, uh, Persia, Iran. uh, The old word is Persia. And then, you know, the the Stan countries over here. That is, you know, it would be hard to be humble if you had a kingdom like that, wouldn't it? you got to feel sorry for people like Ahasuerus. I mean, boy, that'd go to your head. And it kind of did go to his head, I think. But uh, what a vast empire this was. Very vast. Verse 2. In those days, King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. And Shushan, also called Shush. That's where we get the word, you know, Shush. No, uh, not really. But Shush or, or Susa. S-U-S-A, known by all of those names. It's in the southwestern part of modern-day Iran. And it was one of Persia's four capital cities. You know you've got a large empire when you have to have four capital cities. Where's the capital? Well, which one? There's four capital cities. Uh, it seems this one was the prominent one. The word citadel means fortified palace. So here he is. He's on his throne in his fortified palace. Verse 3. That in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, and the princes of the provinces being before him. So this is the third year of the reign of Ahasuerus. And uh, that would have been 483 BC. Now commentaries bring out that right at this time, and this is an important point to note here, Uh, He was preparing to go to war with Greece, which happened a couple years later or so, 480 B.C. So part of what may have been happening here, along with all these festivities, the, the king was building support for his coming war effort. Seems that was kind of in the background here. And many of the commentators bring this out. Now, Persia was the dominant force, but media was also a main power center now under the controlling authority of King Ahasuerus. You see, Media was once an an independent, separate nation, but was conquered by the Persian king Cyrus some years earlier. Cyrus the Great in in 550 BC. Still, Media kind of, they were a a strong people and of strong character, and they kind of still maintained their own identity, but they are under the authority of Persia at this point. But still, Media and Persia were recognized as the centralized power centers in the kingdom. So uh, what are we talking about here? Uh, Here we are, Susa, this uh, capital city. You can see Media, this area over here by the Caspian Sea, uh, a real power center. And then Persia down here. Of course, the kingdoms all over the place here. But this is kind of the the power centers uh, historically. Uh, what became this larger, uh, this, this huge uh, kingdom. Verse four, here's what's happening. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Now that's a party. That's a party. This was show off time, show off time and a big party. This big show went on for 180 days, which tallies to six months. That's a lot of time to do nothing but basically flaunt your greatness, right? So that's a, that's a lot of flaunting. That's, that's, a, that's quite a deal. That's quite a party. I don't know. Has there ever been another 6 months party on, on this scale that you know of? Well, I don't know. It'd be hard to top this one. This is a big party. Woo! Maybe Solomon. I don't think we read about it, but, uh, you know, this is something. Well, as it says here, he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty. You know what I see there? A lot of his. A lot of his. His glorious kingdom. His excellent majesty. This was all about the king. Showing off. How about how great his his is. Verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So it seems what's being said here is after this six-month celebration, it seems there was a special seven-day feast for just those people in the main capital city of Shushan. And everyone was invited this city was the site of one of, David, or one of Daniel's visions, as seen in Daniel 8, 2, just as kind of a, a footnote. And the remains of this city have been unearthed in the modern-day city of Shush in Iran. And you'll find a lot of children there who have been told to be quiet. I'm just <laughs> kidding. But uh, again, <clears throat> this is the, the place we're talking about, right here. This is the uh, capital city, uh, an all-city party. And verse 6 continues, There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars. And couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. Boy, there's a description being made here. A very colorful one, right? Wow, I wonder what the uh, the couches of gold and silver on a, on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, wonder what that looked like. Just curious. Uh, it was quite a sight. It was an ele- elegant garden, if there ever was one, and someone has called this, quote, the most colorful verse in the Bible. I don't know about that. I might want to challenge that in terms of the New Jerusalem and the stuff we find in the book of Revelation. But it certainly is one of the most colorful back here. Beauty, eloquence, and extravagance define the moment for sure. Verse 7. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. Boy, the wine was flowing freely here. It was a party. What a great guy, this king, right? What do you think? What a great guy. Well, look at our king. Look at what he's doing for us. I mean, this is politically correct stuff here. This is This is... Free drinks on the king, everyone. Served in a very flamboyant manner. You want to take a seat on the golden couch? Yeah, let's take a picture. Oh, they didn't take pictures, maybe. But anyway, it was party time in the Capitol. Verse 8, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. Note that. It's all furnished. But you didn't have to. Uh, And that's kind of interesting, because where we go in this story is compulsory the command of the king but yet in this situation you weren't commanded to do anything nobody's being pushed or forced here this is just the king's generosity is making it available but but no 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 pressure for the soul the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure be very sensitive to everybody out here we, we want to please all the people we want to make everybody happy Drinks were on the king, but no one was forced to drink. I think the king was seeking to raise his popularity level. Again, uh, many think this was so in strategically preparing to go to war against Greece. Uh, The emphasis here was not on the king forcing his way, but catering to each man's pleasure. And that usually gets high political ratings. It's a good political move. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So while the men carried on with their drinking party, there was also a special feast for the women headed up by Queen Vashti. And it also took place in the royal palace, with special emphasis on it belonging to King Ahasuerus, as everything's about him, you know. Everything is strategically planned to make the king look good. That's what we got going here. Verse 10, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Seventh day. So we've got a seven-day party going. And on the seventh day, I mean, this is the last day of the party. This is where we're going to end with a really big bang here. This is the last day. And the king's feeling really happy. He was merry with wine. He commanded, uh, I debated whether to try to pronounce all these guys. He commanded me, human, uh, besta, Harbona, Bigtha, uh, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass. Seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. So again, so on the last day of the feast, the king is feeling the effects of the wine. As it says here, he was merry with wine. And in that context, he commands seven of his eunuchs to go and get Queen Vashti and bring her to the men's main event so that he might show her off. After all, he was showing off everything else to make himself look really good, why not his good-looking, beautiful wife? Hey, this is a wonderful idea. I mean, this will be the, you know, the climactic high point of, of the whole party. This is really going to make... say, wow, look, look at the king's wife. Now... Men were made eunuchs to serve in relation to the king's royal harem. That was common because being emasculated, they were no longer a threat to the king in terms of trying to seduce his women. And so verse 11 says the king dispatched them to do what? Verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. She's a beautiful woman. Notice the king in his merry state did not think to ask Vashti if this would work for her. <laughs> he simply gave the command. That's well, a little different feel. Remember the feel in, in verse 8, not compulsory, uh, that each should, should do according to, to each man's pleasure. Well, he, he doesn't, that was not the, quite the sentiment here with Vashti. He gives the command. Verse twelve, and uh, verse uh, verse uh, ten, uh, ten. Verse ten, uh, when the king was merry with wine, he commanded. He commanded. This wasn't a suggestion. Now, just from a common sense standpoint, this is probably never a good idea to force the wife to parade her beauty in front of a bunch of drunk men on day seventh of the drinking party. Probably not a good idea. But when you're the king like Ahasuerus was, especially when feeling the effects of the wine, what's that, what's that to stop you? Uh, no, didn't. And so he commanded that Vashti be brought before the king wearing her royal crown. Now, because of her refusal to come, it has often been discussed why she refused. That's a good question. Why? Was she just saying, you know what? I'm, I'm just tired of this. You know, I want my, I want my rights like everybody else here. Uh, some have suggested the emphasis here on showing her beauty may have involved some, some sort of lewd connotations. But in truth, it doesn't really say that. The emphasis is on her wearing her crown. Uh, all it says he wanted to appear impressive with her royal crown. He wanted her to look good, in effect, to make him look good. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Oh boy, oh boy, this was a really bold move on her part. You see, no one refused the king's command. To do so was to put your life in danger. Now, it would be nice if we were told more about her reasoning and why she did not want to come. That would, even a small little sentence would have been helpful. (laughs) <laughs> but we're not given that. Was it because she did not want to be portrayed as, as merely a sex object, the king's trophy wife? Was it that she resented being commanded to perform in this manner? Uh, commentators bring out that history shows that Vashti was, in fact, pregnant at this time with a hazardous uh, third son that she was about to give birth to. Uh, by the name of Artaxerxes. And if true, that might explain some things. I don't know, but it might, right? Don't ask a pregnant woman who possibly isn't feeling very well to put herself on parade. Morning sickness and beauty pageants don't go well together, especially forced ones. Now again, we don't know that for sure, but history is clear that she did bring forth a son, Ahasuerus' son. And we assume she got pregnant before this and was pregnant when this is happening. An interesting note is that the son Vashti gave birth to later succeeded his father Ahasuerus on the throne. His name was Artaxerxes. And interestingly, the son whom Vashti was pregnant with became a stepson of Esther. Boy, how's that for an interesting turn of events. Well, whatever the reason, and we want to be careful, I'm not dogmatic about any of those things I'm just putting out there, but uh, whatever the reason for Vashi's refusal, it doesn't appear the king even bothered to inquire why. Being on a week-long drinking binge, if you will, at this party, uh, does tend to dull the senses where common sense is out the window. Uh, Proverbs 31, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, uh, nor princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. So drinking, and we're talking too much drinking here, uh, certainly gets in the way of making sound judgment calls. The Bible doesn't forbid wine if used in moderation. But there is danger, which is why the Bible does emphasize, let's be under the uh, influence of the Spirit. And not wine. Be not drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So uh, that's uh, what is to characterize us as believers. All Ahasuerus, in his wine-influenced state, could think about, I think, was his ego, his party, his reputation. It was, after all, all about him. And so he was furious. His anger burned within him. He was really mad. He was really hot. Now, it is brought out that the whole big affair that had been going on for months, capped off with this finale of this final all-capital city, all capital city party, was really intended to, to build the king up. Perhaps support for his upcoming war. Again, don't want to read too much into that, but historically that seems to be the context. It certainly was to show his greatness. But now he couldn't even control his own wife. And this looked really bad. What a terrible way for these glorious festivities to end as far as he was concerned. I think, as I say, Ahasuerus intended Vashti to be the crescendo of the big show. But it was ending in disaster from his perspective. How bad this made him look. He couldn't even get his own wife to cooperate. Even she wouldn't obey his explicit commands. This made him look really bad and it made him really angry. By the way, just as a practical matter, I think a little communication may have been helpful here. Uh, The king maybe could have talked privately with Vashti to see what was going on with her. Maybe she had a little morning sickness going on that day. I don't know. Uh, Maybe a little communication instead of just an out-and-out command would have been helpful. And maybe before... Just refusing, she could have quietly asked to meet with the king and reason with him a little bit and say, "Honey, you know I'm not feeling well these days." If that was the case, or whatever it might have been, uh, whatever the situation, a little communication might have worked wonders here in this situation. But it doesn't seem there was any of that. Neither really uh, was communicating. It seems at this point. Other than a command to come and a total absolute refusal, I'm not coming. Doesn't seem there's a lot of communication in between there. And when communication breaks down, lots of times bad things happen. But here is a, a, the major thing as we consider the storyline and where it goes. Neither Ahasuerus nor Vashti had a clue where this was going. Just oblivious to what God was doing providentially. You know, people get so wrapped up in their own little world, they're totally oblivious to what God is doing. But through it all, God is providentially at work through what I'm sure Ahasuerus and Vashti both thought was a disastrous situation. But God had bigger plans. It was bigger than Ahasuerus. It was bigger than Vashti. And isn't that always the case? God's ways are always bigger than our ways, and they're always better than our ways. Kings think they're in charge, but God ever remains sovereign. And providentially, he is at work in the background to bring glory to himself. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. It's interesting how he providentially and sovereignly works. Even with people that sometimes are kind of out of the will of God. You say, well, he can only use people that are perfectly in step with the will of God. Boy, that's going to get very limited in a hurry. Uh, well, in these troublesome times, just to wrap up with an application here, it's good to remind ourselves that God is Lord over all leaders. And his providence always holds sway. You can say, well, you know, he, he's no longer acting providentially for his good. Yeah, he is. In truth, it's all about God. Uh, Ahasuerus was trying to make it all about him. But it's really all about God. He ever remains a central character in all that is going on in the world. And he ever remains faithful to his promises and his people, even when they're not. We can rest easy in the providential care of God, even when he's not named, even when he's overlooked, even when things seem really bad, no matter the circumstances or the situation, God's providential hand can be seen by those who see God's hand in everything. And you can mark it down, his hand is in everything. I love this uh, quote from James Russell Lowell. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. This is the central message of Esther. God providentially cares for his own, and you can rest in that reality. It's not out of control. God sovereignly at work, behind the dim unknown, standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Let's have our closing song, and then I'll close us in prayer.